Vicki England has been out of the electoral fray for about four years after spending two non-consecutive terms in the Missouri House. But now the Democrat is back as her party's nominee for state treasurer. England joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about her campaign during the era of COVID-19 and how she bolster the statewide post. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining us is St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And the Democratic nominee for Missouri State Treasurer, she's a former state representative from South St. Louis County. Our guest today is... Vicki England. So great to be here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for, for talking with us today. This is part of our unofficial series where we are trying to interview all of the major statewide aspirants for Missouri office this year. Uh, by the time this airs, State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick's episode should be online, so voters will have full shows with both treasurer candidates. And uh, Vicki, I want you to—you've well, been on the show before, but for people that did not listen four or five years ago, I do want to give you a chance to give a bio about yourself and just explain why you're running for state treasurer. Sure. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jason and Jacqueline, for the opportunity. Um, as you said, my name is Vicki Englund. I'm the Democratic nominee for Missouri State Treasurer. And I got involved in politics quite a few years ago now. Back in 2008, I ran in an open seat. It was an open Republican seat in South St. Louis County, uh, which for those listeners who know is the Oakville-Melville area. Um, I ran for the first time in 08 and won. So that was a very great way to enter into the political arena. Um, the woman that I beat that year, the Republican, um, she beat me in 2010. I beat her in 2012. She beat me in 2014, and I came about 400 votes shy of winning in 2016. So in the middle of all that uh, time, I also ran and served on the Lindbergh School Board for six years, the last couple of years as its treasurer. So um, I think my Desire to be in politics has stemmed from way back when in grade school when a boy told me a girl couldn't be president. And from then on out, I just really wanted to make a difference in people's lives. I worked for the Clinton administration at the SBA and uh, have a small business background, have always had economic development as one of my key issues, and I'm a small business owner myself. So all of those things have I've been very passionate about, uh, public education. When I served in the House, I even passed some legislation to help the treasurer's office uh, back in the day. So I'm excited to be running statewide. Um, it is definitely an interesting year to be running statewide in Missouri and um, at all even. And so I'm, I'm looking to take that experience that I have in legislature, also working on bipartisan issues and take that to the treasurer's office. I mean, public office, there's, there's lots of you know, areas where you could enter, as you mentioned, being a state legislator, but why specifically the treasurer's office? 
Well, I can't say that little girls grow up thinking that they want to be treasure. You know, that's not typically uh, at the top of the list, although it should, because what I'll tell you is um, the treasurer's office is, is, while it's not as well known as some other statewide offices, it's just as important. And with COVID-19 in our world, it's almost even more important now because in, um, the main role of the treasurer is to invest the state's money before the legislature and the governor spends the money. So those investments need to be made um, in places that will have secure lines of investment and basically taking your taxpayer dollars and trying to make more money with that money. So you can see the treasurer as sort of the CFO or the chief financial officer of the state. Um, in addition, the treasurer's office does a lot of small business and agricultural loans. Um, so my background at the SBA is perfect for that. Um, the treasurer's office does college 529 college savings accounts and um, not enough people in the state know about those. I'm the first in my family to go to college that lines up really well uh, with my interest and support for public education. And I think what got me interested in the treasurer's office to begin with is actually the unclaimed property division. And so when I was a legislator, someone from the treasurer's office handed me a CD-ROM and they said, Representative England, here is a list of several hundred people in your district and the money that is owed to them from the state, go find them and give them their money back. And I thought, what better constituent service is that than to call someone and say, hey, I have some money you didn't even know you had. Would you like me to send it to you? So um, obviously the unclaimed property isn't quite that easy, but um, I was also able to pass legislation in 2013 that allowed the treasurer's office to return unclaimed military medals back to the families um, of the veterans who lost them. So for me, my dad being a Vietnam vet, being able to help veterans throughout the state of Missouri also made me more enamored with the office of the treasurer. What are some goals that you have uh, if you were to be elected? What are some of the major themes that you would like to see accomplished in your tenure? So there are several things that I think need to be improved and must be improved for the treasurer's office. Uh, first and foremost, um, I think we need to do a better job of encouraging entrepreneurialism and focusing on getting our economy back on track. And uh, my campaign has been releasing one new idea of how to get Missouri's economy back on track for the last 100 days of the campaign. So you can go to vickyenglund.com to see those ideas. Um, it's so important that the treasurer's office be used to help spur economic development and not just make loans, um, to create small businesses. And with my small business background, I've been selling online uh, for 20 plus years. My original goal before COVID was to have seminars on the treasurer's website, teaching people how to start their own small business and how to bring their existing businesses online. And when you get into issues that have to do with modernizing small businesses, you get into issues of rural broadband. You know, you can't think that getting information out to small business owners and farmers throughout Missouri is going to be any kind of effective way to communicate unless you can get rural broadband. So as treasurer, my goal will be to support our small businesses, make sure that we have targeted loans to agricultural uh, to farms and businesses in areas that have been hit hardest by COVID-19, but then also grow our existing businesses. And I think there are a lot of creative ways the treasurer's office can get involved with that. Also, the treasurer's office is not a very diverse place. We need to make sure that we uphold values of diversity and inclusion. And I plan to start a an internship program with the HBCU that is right there in Jeff City, Lincoln University, have the students from there come into the treasurer's office and help with some of the 
updating of the office that I'm talking about by bringing the unclaimed property auctions online, by finding more people to return uh, their unclaimed property. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity in the office that I think just has not been uh, taken advantage of, advantage of. And this is the time now more than ever that we really need to focus on saving our small businesses and farms in Missouri. I want to ask about the diversity question, because this is something we brought up with the two Democratic Attorney General candidates. I think it's one thing to strive to diversify a governmental office like the treasurer's office or the attorney general's office. It's a whole another thing to follow through, especially when people could make so much more money in the private sector than working for the state treasurer's office. How do you plan on actually doing more than just saying you want to diversify the state treasurer's office and actually do it? Well, and I think it starts with, you know, an internship type program. You know, there are lots of internship opportunities in the Capitol building working for state legislators. I had several interns when I was there, uh, several interns that went on to become legislative assistants and even further um, up the chain as far as having jobs in the Capitol building itself. But I think the executive branch, specifically the treasurer's office, uh, is someone that is an office that people don't know a whole lot about. So by starting an internship program, um, and possibly even creating new revenue streams for the state through the treasurer's office. I had an idea to have a delivery subscription service. So like if you are at home, which a lot of us are, and you really want to subscribe, let's say to the Missouri in a box every month, you could get a box sent to your doorstep that has gooey butter cake from St. Louis, barbecue sauce from Kansas City, um, you know, maybe some some breweries from some of the microbreweries in Springfield. So putting together a project like that, I think would spark the interest of a lot of people who are younger and coming from uh, Lincoln University. But then also there are other states who are using the treasurer's office to create new revenue. And I think that part of the equation is something that um, we'll be able to start and see how it goes. You know, um, anytime you try to bring something entrepreneurial and creative, to a state office, there's probably gonna be some pushback, but that's, we need to start thinking outside that bureaucratic box that we live in in Jeff City sometimes and really try out these new ideas and get people excited to work. And, you know, we, we have to increase our revenue as a state or you're right, you know, these jobs that we have available are not competitive now for workers, but maybe it's a stepping stone um, for someone who's still in college or, or right out of college. I have a few um, COVID-19 related questions since that seems to dominate, you know, our world right now. Um, as part of your campaigning and just kind of reading around, trying to get to know a little bit about you before this, um, I wanted to ask you about the public health focused economic recovery plan that you are campaigning on um, as a part of just relief for COVID-19. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. So my experience in economic development and helping smaller businesses uh, really started before, during, and after 9-11. So at the time that happened, I was working St. Louis County economic development. I was the South County sector specialist, which meant I was a liaison between the small business owners in Lime, Afton, Melville, Oakville, parts of South County, and the government in Clayton. And so when you're working directly with, and we use the phrase mom and pops, you're talking about, you know, maybe the roofing company that is, was started by the grandfather and now the father and the son run it, or you're talking about the small print shop, or you're talking about a small restaurant. Each of those individual 
um, business owners have different needs. But the one thing that's common is you can't expect people to be able to go out to dinner with their family if they don't feel safe. And you can't expect um, people to go to a theater and watch a movie with their family if they don't feel safe. And so when I say health-focused economic recovery plan, I'm talking about wearing masks. And that you would think would not be as controversial as it is all over the state. Um, we need to be able to provide safe places for commerce to happen. And the number one way to do that is to wear a mask and to require that throughout the state of Missouri. And it's not because, I mean, I personally make face masks and I am a crafter and I love to work with my hands. And it's not because I wanna keep making, I've already made probably 1200 face masks personally. It's not because I wanna keep making them and it's not because I wanna make anyone do anything. It's just from an economic standpoint, we cannot move forward until we get COVID under control. And so that is just the first thing um, that we need to do to keep people safe. Um, our economy will never be the same, but we can't deny um, that it's different and we have to move forward. Is that something that you intend to speak with the governor about? I mean, if you were to be elected, how would how would the treasurer's office, you know, go about mandating masks? Well, I mean, it, you're right. It would be it wouldn't be something that would be a requirement that the treasurer would be able to do, but. In this day and age, we need to show leadership and what that looks like. I mean, I don't currently go out of my house without wearing a mask. I wear a mask wherever I go and modeling that behavior and showing people that it can be done uh, is something that is the very first step. Um, so yes, I will be working with whoever's governor, uh, hopefully it's uh, Auditor Galloway who's governor and working to make that happen. And, you know, there are other things that we can do that we need to do to help our small businesses. And I, one of the other ideas has to do with internet, taxing the internet sales. You know, there was a, an effort in the legislature earlier this year for the Wayfair tax. And unfortunately that didn't get uh, passed, but we need to look at things like that and say, okay, look, if we really wanna give our small businesses, our local small businesses an even playing field with the rest of the world, we need, we're only one of two states that don't have an internet sales tax. So by putting that in there, not only would we be helping local businesses, but now we would have a revenue source that we could use to do a variety of things. We could use it for infrastructure improvements. We could direct that money toward COVID relief for our schools. Um, so we have to sort of put those, um, I guess those viewpoints aside uh, when it comes to things that we need to do and really focus on the problem at hand and find solutions to those problems. Recently, the treasurer has um, garnered some public attention because he uh, was placed in charge of the task force to manage COVID-19 funds that the state is receiving from the federal government. I just wanted to get your take on that task force. Is it needed? And um, how do you think that it can be improved, if at all? Well, I'm happy to um, that eventually with some urging, there were some uh, members of the legislature that were appointed to that task force uh, so that we could increase our diversity in that task force. That wasn't the case to begin with. It's unfortunate that that had to be brought to the treasurer's attention. So I'm glad that there is a group assembled now that looks more like Missouri. Um, we definitely need to have community input and a task force to talk about these funds. Um, you know, it, it is a new, a new avenue, a new thing that we have this money that needs to be directed. My concern is that a lot of counties who are receiving uh, these funds are not then passing those funds along to their health departments. 
And that part, um, you know, there are several counties in our state that don't really think that COVID is an issue for them, or they may be thinking it will never be an issue in their particular county. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know what they're doing with the money when the county gets it, if they are, you know, not believing that COVID's a thing, but still taking the money to address it. That's, that's the part that, that I get concerned about when that money isn't going to the health departments who need to be planning and getting ready uh, for, for hotspots, which we have several around the state. And we are a hotspot overall as a state. We'll be right back on Politically Speaking with Democratic Treasurer Hopeful Vicki England. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Democratic Treasurer nominee Vicki England. I want to move on to a topic that seems to transfix Missouri policymakers far and wide for well over a decade, and that is uh, what to do with the state low-income housing tax credit. So this is kind of an interesting question to ask the, the Democratic treasurer candidate, because in 2017, the treasurer was Eric Schmidt, who voted against the state low-income housing tax credit freeze. He's now attorney general. I think it's pretty much a foregone conclusion. It's going to be turned back on uh, maybe in, I think, either next week or the week after. I'm sure you dealt with this issue a lot when you were in the legislature. I know in 2009, you were in the House when they decided to cap low-income housing tax credits. And there's been a debate for a number of years about the the need of the program, which I think everybody agrees it does produce some really high-quality housing for people that really need it, and the efficiency of the program, which some people think is not there, it's too expensive, it's too much of a boon for developers. Uh, State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick, I think, agrees it's a worthwhile program, but has been very critical of its efficiency and has tried to make changes to it. What's kind of your view of the program? How would you have changed it if you were treasurer? Sure. No, that's a really good question. And, you know, I value the low income housing tax credit program. And, you know, there are lots of programs that we voted on as legislators where you wanted to make sure that the end result is exactly what the public policy was turning out. Um, now, are, are there any tax credit programs or any programs that are completely perfect? No. And so the role of government, in my opinion, and the treasurer will play a role in this, having been sitting on the uh, Missouri Housing Development Cor- uh, Committee is commission, is that you, you need to be able to work toward changes in a way that you can plan it out. So any kind of economic development, any kind of building development, relies on a plan. So simply turning something off and turning it back on again uh, doesn't really help the process. You know, we, we need to keep the process going and I'm much more in favor of changing programs in a planned out way. So that if you are changing a program, the, the end recipients or the developers in this case have an idea of what's going on, when things are gonna change and they can plan accordingly. And to me that requires um, it requires a legislature and leaders who pay attention to that type of longer term perspective, right? Um, unfortunately, with term limits, we have a lot of good legislators we're, we're losing. And so we, it's hard to have that continuity to try to really fix some of these, these problems. Uh, when it comes to redevelopment, especially during a COVID downturn, I, I um, really believe that we have to keep things predictable. And we have to keep things running smoothly because an interruption stopping starting uh, is not a good business decision overall. I know it's perilous to like take uh, 
do a devil's advocate question on behalf of Eric Greitens because he is such a despised, detestable figure across the political spectrum. But I think in his view, the reason he had to freeze the program is because there was a talk about changing the program in the legislature for years and no extreme leverage like shutting the program down without changes. So how do you get to the point where you do make changes where you don't have that leverage that was placed on it in 2017? Well, you know, it's hard to, to single out one program when we're looking at, you know, the entirety of state government and say that the governor has leverage over one thing or another. I mean, he also uh, had leverage over the state school board and just by not appointing people was able to make changes that weren't necessarily ethical or possibly even legal. So I, I get the whole leverage discussion um, but I think one thing that's missing from Jeff City, um, and because my uh, on again, off again um, serving in the legislature, I've been able to see this from a longer picture. I think you still have to create those relationships uh, with people on both sides of the aisle in the legislature. You know, I um, served with a lot of people. I was able to get my veterans bill passed with bipartisan unanimous consent. And it was only because I went and talked to every single Republican and Democrat on the Veterans Committee when I was reelected back in 2012. I didn't know hardly anybody because I had been gone for a couple of years and I didn't even serve on the Veterans Committee. So these relationships really need to be built in such a way that you will be able to sit down and talk with people. And I know as politicians, we talk about bipartisanship all the time, but to me, bipartisanship isn't 50 Republicans and one Democrat vote for a bill. You know, that that's not bipartisanship to me. So this has to be, I think, a statewide leader will be able to have that kind of leverage. But, you know, someone that's going to understand the policy and understand the relationships, because I, I think Governor Greitens had to use that leverage because he didn't have relationships with any legislators, Republican or Democrat. You know, he called them all the swamp. So when you come into office and you are trying to make changes and you've already offended everybody who's there, I don't think you have any other um, levers to pull than shutting things down completely. Another thing that Jacqueline and I would like to talk with you about is Medicaid expansion. Uh, we talked with Treasurer Fitzpatrick about his decision to become a surrogate against Amendment 2, which was the constitutional amendment that expanded Medicaid. How would you have handled, if you had been Treasurer, like, what would you have done publicly? How would you have campaigned for or against that? Sure. We actually did a lot of campaigning for it uh, through my treasures race this cycle. Um, Medicaid expansion is just like a lot of other things uh, when you're talking about budgets. I know one of the arguments against it before it was passed was that it was going to cost the state money. Well, uh, it will also create 16,000 new jobs, which will then create more revenue to cover the cost of the program. So, you know, you can look at any program and you can always find a way to say it's not the right thing to do. But when we're talking about healthcare, and we're talking about something that we were trying to actually vote on when I was first elected back in 2008, uh, when, a, when um, the Affordable Care Act was first passed. You know, th the opportunity to pass something back then would have saved our state so much, so much money. Doing it now will still save us money. So there, there are, are plenty of savings on the savings side of the equation, and we worked really hard for that. And so as treasurer, my focus in supporting Medicaid expansion was the jobs was job creation and obviously healthcare to people, especially during a pandemic, but more importantly, the job creation part of it. And uh, where I treasure at the time that Medicaid expansion was on the ballot, I would not have used my campaign dollars to put gasoline in my plane to fly 
all around Missouri telling people it was a bad idea. I, I think as treasurer, people are going to look at the way you spend money um, much more critically. And to me, that was an irresponsible way to spend contributors' money, was to put that money in your plane as gas money and fly around the state telling people not to vote for Medicaid expansion. So uh, I definitely would not have done that as treasurer. I don't plan to do that uh, in the future. And um, the people of Missouri also need to have spoken, right? So this is just another one of those issues that I know a lot of people are very concerned about that their voice has now been, they've said what they want and they're afraid that the legislature and the governor are, are going to repeal that. So you need to have statewide officials like myself and like Nicole Galloway there to be able to make sure that the will of the people stands because we, we can't keep going back and forth like what's going on right now with Clean Missouri. Because the people have spoken, they did vote to approve amendment two. Um, being, if you were to be elected, the chief financial officer, do you have concerns about the cost of the program? We're hearing that a lot um, from people in the legislature, those in statewide offices. Um, do you have any concerns about that? I know you mentioned the jobs, but what about the cost to the state? Well, right now there's also some funds that we currently are owed uh, from the federal government in regards to our current Medicaid reimbursements that have not been utilized by the state. That money is stuck in, in, in um, Washington, D.C. That fund has not, that money has not been brought back to the state. So first we need to kind of clean up our own house right now and how we are affecting this issue. And, um, you know, we, we, when you have a budget, it's all about your priorities and you need to prioritize the healthcare of your workers in the state. Um, instead of cutting things like education for kids. So, you know, I am not concerned that there's not places in the budget for that. I don't see a way that we can't fund it. I mean, how can we possibly not have healthcare during a global pandemic? I mean, it's just, it just does not make sense. So it, it's, um, it's a high priority because it hits on so many things. It hits on healthcare, it hits on economic development, it hits on, revenue for the state and employment. So when you have something that has so many good things about it, and there have been research paper after research paper, this isn't just Vicki Englund making these numbers up. Um, when you have so many uh, entities that have proven this through data and facts and white papers, uh, this is the one thing that needs to be prioritized over everything else. So in the last few minutes, I do want to talk about the campaign. This is a very unusual campaign cycle. Uh, in the sense that we are still in a pandemic and it really has changed the way people are campaigning. One of the things that I've noticed since I do follow you on Facebook, it seems like you're doing a lot of live streaming and you mentioned that you're you're using social media a lot to run a, a statewide campaign. Sure, so we are not doing uh, in-person events. We are focused uh, mostly on virtual and digital kinds of meetings. Um, we do have a digital ad campaign getting ready to launch uh, on Friday. So by the time you hear this on Thursday, you guys will be able to see uh, that on Friday. Um, I'll tell you that when you're, when you're sitting at home and you're trying to talk to people and you're not able to be out and about like normal, we make a lot of phone calls. I mean, you normally make a lot of phone calls. We have phone banking uh, for both for volunteers. We've been doing that for the past six months, talking to people. And, and we're finding that in this pandemic, there are a lot of people who just want to talk. They want, they want someone to hear what they're going through. They want someone to pay attention to their needs and to hear firsthand. So I talk to business owners and farmers and people who work in nonprofits and labor unions all day long, every day. 
and I find out what parts of the state are struggling in different ways, uh, how each community is, is getting through that, and what I can do to help out. So it is a different role. It's um, maybe a leader in chief role, um, someone to listen to, but also um, when you're doing, we do a lot of Zoom events and we call them whistle stop tours, you know, in, um, in honor of Harry Truman who traveled around the United States on a train, and that's why they have bunting here, um, to have these whistle stop tours. And we're able to talk to folks that way. However, I will tell you one of the things that I'm learning, and I knew this, but I didn't really run into it, was the lack of rural broadband. So you, you know, you might be on a Zoom call or offer to do a Zoom meeting with a group um, in rural Missouri, and they will say, well, we don't really have good enough internet to be able to show video, but we can have people call in with their, their phones. And so it just makes it that much more important um, that we are, and so if, if we can't even do a Zoom meeting with folks um, throughout the state of Missouri, I can't imagine how they're able to have virtual instruction for their kids. Um, I know a lot of schools are still meeting in person, but not only is rural broadband important for commerce and for um, being able to spread messages, but it's important for education too. So I'm kind of learning about that firsthand and what that exactly means uh, for someone on the other end. And someone said to me too, well, even if we had rural broadband, we don't really have the computers or the training um, with the computers to know how to use them. My kids know how to use them, but I don't really know how to use them. So that's kind of another component uh, to learning more about peop what people are going through. So um, it is challenging, but I think there are a lot more people paying attention this time. I'm hearing so many more people say, look, I've never been in involved in politics before, but what's going on right now and the lack of information that we have about how to, how to resolve this pandemic and how to keep our families safe, the lack of information is stunning. And that's why I'm interested in politics. What is kind of your strategy of winning this contest um, in a state that has become more Republican since you first ran in 2008. Um, but, you know, as we've seen in recent history, it's not necessarily impossible for a Democrat to win. My race has been targeted by the National Democratic Treasurers Association as one of their top three pickups in the country this cycle. And so they have a much broader view of what they're seeing and how they're seeing states change. Um, you know, they see my race as being really an open seat, um, you know, not having someone I'm running against who has name recognition. Uh, I've outraised him the last two quarters of fundraising. Uh, now he was able to transfer money over from when he was House Budget Chair. Um, but running for office in the, the types of races I've run, I've only run in Republican areas. You know, when I ran for state rep, it was District 85. Then it changed District 94, which means it actually was redrawn. So half the district changed. So you could say that I've run in one and a half state rep districts. And then I also ran for school board, which is about this, maybe a third of the size of a, a state Senate seat. And that had very little overlap with my state rep area. So just geographically, um, more people have seen my name in the state than my opponent. My opponent has never had a competitive race other than his very first one um, in a three-way primary where he garnered 3,789 votes. Let me tell you, I have never run in a race where I've gotten that small amount of votes. So just knowing that there are more people out there who know who I am uh, makes a big difference. Uh, we are also working um, with labor unions all across the state to get my name out. And one of the reasons I decided to run to answer your question about can a Democrat win statewide in Missouri in the year 2020, when I decided to run for this office about a year ago, 
I, I took a long, hard look at that question. And there were several reasons why I know a Democrat can win. The first one is we were able to defeat right to work. Um, Amendment two was failed by a good margin, two to one. <laughs> um, and I knew that people who support democratic values are all over the state. The second reason I decided to run statewide is because when I was first elected in 2008, right before I was elected, we were 11 seats in the minority. I was one of the three pickups. So when I served, we were eight seats in the minority. And I served with several dozen rural, moderate, uh, probably more conservative Democrats. And so while those seats are now flipped to Republican, the people that supported them are still, still live in those communities. So it's because of knowing that you can't gerrymander the state, um, because the gerrymandering has happened at the state rep level. Um, you know, I don't have to win every single county in the state of Missouri in order to be the treasurer. I also know I just have to perform well. And knowing that uh, when Eric Greitens was elected in 2016, he had 51% of the vote and Donald Trump had 57, 58% of the vote, that's six or 7% of the people that only voted for president and didn't even support the Republican for governor. So I feel like there are enough people that are really looking for a change uh, that are looking and historically when the economy has gone down, the treasurer has flipped from Republican to Democrat. So when the economy turns bad, people tend to look to Democrats to make it better. Well, Vicki, thank you so much for joining our show. And as I mentioned before, if you want to listen to Treasurer Fitzpatrick's podcast, it is on our website, stlpublicradio.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Jacqueline? Driscoll NPR. And how could people follow you either on Twitter or find out more about your campaign through your campaign website? Sure. So my Twitter handle is at V England, which is V-E-N-G-L-U-N-D. And um, you can go to my Facebook page, Vicki Lorenz England or VickiEnglund.com. And if you can't remember how to spell Vicki, V-I-C-K-I in England, E-N-G-L-U-N-D, you can also go to MissouriForward.com uh, to make a contribution. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long.